Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study, Episode 9. Today we'll be thinking about Mosiah 29 through Alma Chapter 4 with David Charles Gore. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm conducting today's session from my home in Provo, Utah. Other board members, Michael Austin and Christian Kimball, are in the background helping with technical things um, and they may poke in here and there. Um, on your screen. We're using our webinar format again, which doesn't allow you to see each other, but does allow you to chat and post comments and ask questions. And we ask, as always, that you do so respectfully and in ways that are in keeping with our speaker's message. Uh, note on that that you have the option to chat with presenters or with presenters and other attendees, which is probably what you want to do. We anticipate having some discussion of sorts toward the end and we'll try to pull in some of your comments and questions and things you've been thinking and talking about on chat. Um, welcome to those who are joining us on Facebook Live. Um, we're live there and we think we have issues worked out, but if it gets disconnected, just know that we'll get it restarted as soon as we can. Uh, David Gore, our teacher today, is professor and department head in the Department of Communication at the University of Minnesota Duluth. His work engages politics and religion and faith and reason and addresses why building strong communities and strong commitments to the sacred remain relevant in a secular age. He's the author of, among many other things, uh, The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon, which was published in 2019 by the Neil Maxwell Institute. Um, I also wanted to mention that David is a dialogue author. Uh, his amazing publications for us include most recently Being a Household World, uh, which was published in our winter 2019 issue, and um, Joseph Smith's letter from Liberty Jail as Epistolary Rhetoric, which um, was in our winter 2010 issue. These articles and our entire 50 plus year run of dialogue, scholarship, art, poetry, personal essays, sermons, and more are all available for free online at dialoguejournal.com. Um, there, of course, you can also find links to some other features, um, including our podcasts and um, that include our previous gospel study lessons. Um, David grew up in Aurora, Colorado, and has since lived in Wyoming and England and Texas, and currently resides in Duluth, Minnesota, with his wife, Kathy Gore, and their five children. He is currently the stake president for the Duluth, Minnesota stake. It seems um, fitting that with this lesson, our collective minds and hearts are directed toward Minnesota as I imagine that they have been all week as we've grappled with the news and the evidence of the murder of our brother, George Floyd. And I say his name and acknowledge the struggle for black lives and the deep wounds created by racism. Uh, and I say it with hope for justice, justice in his case and for the kind of justice in the world that Latter-day Saint Apostle Jeffrey Holland explained in April conference is central to the work of the restoration. Personal dignity for every child of God, 
unmarred by any form of racial, ethnic, or religious prejudice. This is the work that we can and must, I believe, as disciples of Christ do. Dialogue is committed to that vision of the restoration. Indeed, it was founded in the 1960s on that vision. And as part of that, we seek to provide a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for the faith's most vibrant thinking. We're excited that David accepted the invitation to teach today and are grateful for his preparation. Uh, the disclaimer, of course, is that as with any Latter-day Saint gospel study class, the views expressed today are the teacher's own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or of any other organization. Before David's lesson, we'll have an opening musical selection, the American Folk Hymn, His Voice as the Sound, performed by the Tabernacle at Temple Square for the October 2018 General Conference. After which, John Quorm will pray for us. John resides in Provo, Utah. He is a BYU law graduate, a criminal defense attorney with the Utah County Public Defenders Association, and an adjunct professor at Utah Valley University. He's also a dialogue contributor, but none of this tells you very much about the amazing human that he is. So I hope he'll, he'll forgive me if I share um, just some personal reflections. Um, I first met John when he was an undergrad at BYU and I was a brand new faculty member. I was blessed to have him in at least two of my classes. Uh, and this was in the not so distant past when it was still quite common for religion faculty to teach as doctrine the racist myths that we're unfortunately all too familiar with even today. Um, and I can remember having conversations with him about this and about some of the other encounters that he had with racism on campus and in the community. Uh, um, and it's because of John and because he was determined to take action on racial issues on campus that I began to move outside my own comfort zone and began to take responsibility outside of the classroom for what was happening or not, not happening at the university um, and relatedly in the larger, larger church. And with everything that's been happening this past week, I've especially been thinking about him and his family, his three young boys and wife, Sharla, um, and about other students of color that I've been privileged to teach and to learn from and be challenged by over the last decade and a half. Anyway, all of this is to say that I'm grateful that he accepted this invitation and I wanted to just acknowledge some of the work that he's done to help move our faith community and the people that he comes in contact with toward the kind of love and justice that is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, Michael will cue the music, we'll pray together, and then turn the time to David.
Our dear beloved Father in heaven, we're grateful for the Sabbath day, we're grateful for the ability to meet in this manner and gather together in this, in this way. Father, we are grateful for the many blessings that we enjoy and we're grateful for thy son and his sacrifice and the great examples of, of wonderful people that we have in our lives and of those examples of even those people that we don't know. Father, we ask of thee to accept our gratitude. We also ask of thee, Father, at this time to, um, to bless our, our loved ones and our families and, and bless those who are, are struggling and who are suffering at this time. Um, we ask of thee to bless those who have experienced loss and who are experiencing um, deep and great frustration. We ask of thee to bless our brothers and sisters who are experiencing distress and disease and to be with them. Father, we also ask of thee to, uh, to be mindful of us and to be mindful of the things that we're all going through at this time, to be mindful of people, our brothers and sisters here in this country who who are facing um, hard things and, and bless our brothers and sisters across the world who are also facing difficult struggles. Father, we also, at this time, we especially ask of you to um, bless our gathering at this time and to bless our instructor and allow us to, um, to be edified by uh, the things that he has prepared to share with us. And we ask these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, for that uh, beautiful introduction and grateful for uh, John for his prayer and also for the opportunity to listen to that hymn. I want to start by uh, saying good morning to all of you. Uh, thank thank uh, Taylor Petrie for inviting me to present today and the dialogue board for their support of this event and for all the teachers who have preceded me in the series. I've learned a lot and I hope to make a worthy contribution today. Appropriately, our subjects for this morning are political anger and political mourning. Perhaps at no time has there been a shortage of things to be angry about and things to mourn. This last week has been especially trying in this regard, even these last few months. I wish I could teach you how, with God's help, to turn your anger into mourning but I'm afraid I'm still learning how to do that myself. All I can offer this morning is an invitation to reflect on the ineffectual and harmful aspects of anger in politics and to consider the soul-enhancing power of mourning. In the, 30th, in the 30th Psalm, fifth verse, we read, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. I was a very young man when my father read this verse at a funeral and taught me how to read the word morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, also as the word morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Lately, as I have pondered the injustices of the world, my thoughts have turned to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
That parable is about a rich man who wore fine clothes and ate well every day, and also about a beggar named Lazarus who wanted to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. When they both died, the last was first and the first was last. Lazarus was found in Abraham's bosom and the rich man found himself in hell. I'm personally drawn to this parable because of its cynic tone and because the beggar has a name while the rich man is nameless, a sign that the parable is turning the values of this world on their head. The total reversal of the rich man and Lazarus poses a key question for all of us about who we are and where we are right now. The parable is followed by the words of the Lord. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Speaking to you as I am from Minnesota, I cannot fail to mention my own outrage and grief at the offensive death of George Floyd. Many people in our community are afraid and angry, not to mention thoroughly exhausted at having to explain what is right in front of all of us. While I have no magic elixir to make the horrors of the last week go away, I truly believe that we can, slowly but surely, with the Lord's help, turn outrage to good use through mourning. This may not be the usual course for outrage to flow, but by way of a genuine mourning, a mourning that implicates our own sin and vulnerability in a sorrow that also can bear the shame of the world, a sorrow like that borne by Christ himself, we might in some way make sense of the senseless. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Facing police brutality, white privilege, the history of white violence, including slavery, slavery, as well as the inhumanity and inequality deeply rooted in our current system is not an easy thing to do. Lamentably, it is much easier to look away or to fill our lives with superficial media and other light-minded pursuits. Of course, we may not be able to face all of this suffering at once, but learn to face it we must. Learning to be sorrowful and to bear this suffering is what we are called to do. And that incidentally is exactly what Alma did. He saw all this. He suffered days like ours, days of violence, persecution and affliction, days when punches were thrown and people were murdered in the streets. Alma saw days like that, and we are told in Alma chapter 4, verse 15, that he was very sorrowful. But he also learned in the middle of that sorrow that the Spirit of the Lord did not fail him. And it will not fail us. Even when sorrow is heaped upon us, even when, especially when affliction and inequality weigh us down, the Spirit of the Lord will not fail us. And so that's where we're headed this morning, brothers and sisters, toward a deeper appreciation of the power of sorrow 
and toward those moments when morning awakens in us a newfound reliance on the Lord and a love of serving him. Mosiah chapter 29 to Alma chapter 4, five chapters, roughly 7,000 words, constitute a text that I believe can help us just a little toward facing and then changing the world for the better. In the text, we will confront the problem of political anger and factionalism. We'll also remember again what great cause we have to mourn. Mourning and mourning with those that mourn is a cry and a lament for the loss of innocence. Mourning brings us face to face with deprivation, dispossession, and disappointment. We mourn because of the distance between us and the separation that keeps us apart. We feel too the sorrow of others and their times of grief and suffering. As such, mourning is a significant aspect of our covenants and part of why we must leave light-mindedness behind. At best, all I can hope to offer this morning is a brief overview of the scene, together with a meditation on how mourning can give us the much needed perspective on our losses, including losses both public and private. Part of the process of mourning is examining ourselves, seeing and acknowledging our weakness, preparing our hearts to be anxious, that every man and every woman should have an equal chance and express a willingness to answer for their own sins. There are many events in these chapters, including a new arrangement of the government of Zarahemla, a murder, a large public trial, a civil war that turns into a war with the Lamanites, and a period of protracted mourning and peace. As I read and reread these texts for today, I was struck again, as I have been before, by the centrality of mourning in these chapters. For example, at the close of Mosiah 29, we learn of the death of King Mosiah and of Alma the Elder. Right off the bat, the people had a king, and now he's gone, but not before he dismantled the monarchy and put in place a new government. In fact, verse 1 of Alma 1 is a brief eulogy of King Mosiah, an ancient obituary, as it were, recording that he had gone the way of all the earth, having warred a good warfare, walking uprightly before God, leaving none to reign in his stead. Nevertheless, he had established laws, and they were acknowledged by the people and obliged to abide by the laws which he had made. The militaristic metaphor is interesting since from the very beginning, King Mosiah is introduced as one instructed in languages, in reading, and in teaching. And during his reign, King Mosiah spends almost all his time writing to his people and translating ancient records. But it doesn't seem anywhere that he's found fighting. Nevertheless, in nothing does his uprightness seem to be questioned. And what's more, in what is perhaps the ultimate praise any of us could hope for, his people did wax strong in love for him. They did esteem him more than any other man. From such, we learn that those who willingly share power, who govern by goodwill, and who teach freely how individuals can become their best selves, are rewarded by the love and esteem of those they serve. Indeed, all five chapters for today, but most especially Alma 4, are an extended eulogy. In these chapters, we lament the iniquities and abominations of wicked rulers, the burdens on righteous leaders, the vanities of the world, the false doctrines that circulate for the sake of riches and honor, the persecutions and contentions fueled by political conflict, the idolatry and idleness of those who transgress bounds of propriety, 
and the death and loss of property and treasure caused by war. One of the most tragic images of the entire Book of Mormon comes at the end of Alma 2, bodies devoured by beasts and vultures, bones heaped up on the earth, thousands and tens of thousands going into the next world to meet their God. These staggering losses call for a response. The only response that makes sense is mourning. All these losses constitute a sort of broken promise or broken covenant. And the answer for which they call is a covenant kept. Eulogy from the Greek eulogia means a blessing, a true word, and was occasionally used in early times as a word to describe the holy sacrament of our Lord. In ancient Greek rhetoric, eulogy is a species of encomium, speaking in praise of someone or something, which in turn is a species of epideictic rhetoric, which teaches us how to understand what is praiseworthy and what is blameworthy. The three types of discourse, judicial rhetoric, which takes place in a courtroom and concerns itself with actions from the past, deliberative rhetoric, which takes place in legislatures and concerns itself with the future, and epideictic rhetoric, which is a celebration of the community's values in the present, are all geared towards improving us as human beings and helping us understand how our character is also implicated in our communities. Eulogies are part of this third kind of rhetoric celebrating the values we hold dear right now. Eulogies reinforce these values and thus it could be said that eulogies are evergreen. Aiming at consolation and comfort by pronouncing a blessing for the goodness in a person, eulogies elevate us to live our lives on a higher plane by invoking the virtues of others, virtues which we do well to emulate. Funerary rites, including all their ceremonial patterns, function to separate the body of the deceased from the community of the living and to assist the mourners in adjusting to their loss. Holbrook goes further in noting that funeral ceremonies and eulogies serve to secure happiness or at least tranquility for the departed so they no longer haunt the living. And they also serve to repair the breaches in the fabric of society caused by the death of one of our number. If there ever was a society that needed to repair the breach in its fabric, it was Zarahemla in the fifth year of the reign of the judges. Following a violent civil war, so let us work our way there through a text full of grief and the power of social and religious values to bind up wounds. In the 29th chapter of Mosiah, we hear the voice of King Mosiah through an epistolary rhetoric. He speaks directly to us in the form of a letter, a persuasive letter about the kind of persuasion we should learn to practice, a persuasion that engages our hearts and voices and even our shoulders in the shaping of new political realities. Interestingly, Mosiah tells us that he's afraid of the danger anger can do to our political communities. Facing a succession crisis in which no one to whom the kingdom belonged and in which a great many people in the community wanted no king, Mosiah was struck between his duty and the will of the people to compel one of his sons to be king. They refused and he refused eventually doing something else, stating, Behold, I fear there would rise contentions among you, 
and who knoweth but what my son, to whom the kingdom doth belong, should turn to be angry, and draw away a part of this people after him, which would cause wars and contentions among you, which would be the cause of shedding much blood, and perverting the way of the Lord, yea, and destroy the souls of many people. Mosiah knew that fear and anger in politics are divisive forces, forces that draw us away from each other, and by, by their very nature sow contention and discord. When we allow ourselves to feel angry at our fellow citizens, we quickly begin to believe that we share nothing in common, and we can allow conflict to escalate quickly in our minds, if not in reality. Anger fuels a politics of resentment, revenge, and retaliation instead of the politics of friendship and forgiveness. The latter, friendship and forgiveness, are the source of the greatest harmony and joy in private life. Why then should we think it would be otherwise in public life? I'd like to invite you, as if you're following along now, perhaps in the chat, to take a moment to consider the following question. In what ways is it possible to practice friendship and forgiveness in politics over and against resentment and revenge? In what ways is it possible to practice friendship and forgiveness in politics over and against resentment and revenge? King Mosiah continues, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations and also the wickedness and abominations of his people? Behold, what great destruction did come upon them. And also because of their iniquities, they were brought into bondage. Lucky for them, and lucky for us, we get this beautiful sentence from King Mosiah that captures, like the sentence highlighted last week by Bob Reese in his lesson, the transcendent power of the Book of Mormon to point us to Christ. Mosiah writes, And were it not for the interposition of their all-wise creator, and this because of their sincere repentance, they must unavoidably remain in bondage until now. Mosiah 29, 19. Our all-wise creator interposes himself on our behalf, making space for us to escape the bondage of sin through sincere repentance. Jesus was their sole deliverer and helped them discover a new and better way to live. King Mosiah himself re-echoed the praise of the Lord when he taught his people to accept the burdens of governing the community. He knew all too well that one person could not do all the work of holding social life together. Instead, he taught that the burden should come upon all the people. Further, King Mosiah taught that the only way for the burden to be borne by all was if each person became exceedingly anxious that every other person should have an equal chance. And if everyone expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. We might pause here for a moment of self-reflection. How anxious are you for the equality of others? How sorry are you about injustice? And how can you cultivate such anxiety and sorrow? I'm not sure I know what it means to want others to have an equal chance, but surely it's connected to wanting what is best for them, wanting for them to be able to choose their life and what they'll be just as much as you and I want that for ourselves. That we should be anxious for this should be a reminder that we deserve no peace whether of comfort or conscience, when those around us have no justice or suffer unequally to us. Expressing a willingness to answer for our own sins means focusing on the beams in our own eyes 
It means recognizing that our point of view, though wholly natural to us, is only one among many and susceptible to myopia, as well as to genuine distortion. In his letter, King Mosiah persuades his people to forsake monarchy and take up the task of sincere repentance and the work of genuine reconciliation. Ironically and sadly, after Mosiah's death, his people do not all rise to that occasion. For once gone, we see two exemplars of the harm anger does to our communities in Nehor and Amlicai. Nehor and Amlicai are both angry men, divisive factionalists by their nature. Both Nehor and Amlicai sought only their self-aggrandizement and cared little if good men or laws stood in their way. They stood for popularity and idleness, vanity and idolatry. Every move they make is contentious and calculated to divide the people against one another rather than to promote goodwill and genuine affection. While we don't have time to examine today these two characters at great length, suffice it to say that their fruit speaks for itself. In the case of Nehor, murder, and a last second confession. For Amlicai, a lost referendum to make himself king legitimately, followed by an illegitimate consecration to a throne that no longer existed, and then bloody and violent civil war. The civil war spills into the wider war with the Lamanites, culminating in the heap of bones I already mentioned. And this brings me, all of us, to Alma Ford. This chapter, I think, deserves to be taken far more seriously than I think most readers have. I would go out on a limb here and say uh, that Alma Ford compares favorably with Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, and that it seems wholly unconcerned with placing blame and focuses instead on the need to perform our duty, to bind up the brokenhearted with malice toward none and charity for all. It's written in the third verse of Alma Ford, well, actually, we should read verses 2 and 3 of Alma 4. As I think there's something here in verse 2 that I think also uh, we can relate to in the last few months as a country, and also perhaps throughout the world as the suffering of the coronavirus has also uh, caused great havoc and suffering and loss. The people were afflicted, Alma 4 verse 2, the people were afflicted, yet greatly afflicted for the loss of their brethren and also for the loss of their flocks and herds and also for the loss of their fields of grain, which were trodden underfoot and destroyed by the Lamanites. And so great were their afflictions that every soul had cause to mourn. And they believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness, and their abominations. Therefore they were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. Great were their afflictions, such that every soul had cause to mourn. But that mourning brought them into an encounter, a remembrance of their duty. Of course, within a few years, they were back to their old ways, lifted up in their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked, and those who were hungry, and those who were athirst, and those who were sick and afflicted. Yet at the same time, in the middle of that wickedness and stumbling were a few who chose a different path, as recounted in verses 13 and 14. Others were abasing themselves, succoring those who stood in need of their succor, such as imparting their substance to the poor and the needy, feeding the hungry, 
and suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake who should come, according to the spirit of prophecy. Looking forward to that day, thus retaining a remission of their sins, being filled with the great joy because of their resurrection of the dead, according to the will and power and deliverance of Jesus Christ from the bands of death. In this moment, we come full circle back to Alma, who saw the afflictions of the humble and the persecutions of his people, and who was very sorrowful, but nevertheless buoyed up by the Spirit of the Lord. So in closing, my final question for you is to consider how genuinely sorrowful are we for anger in politics, for inequality in society, and for the afflictions and persecutions borne by our brothers and sisters? As I pondered that question over the last few weeks, I, I think I found in myself perhaps a need to cultivate greater sorrow in my life. Not only sorrow for myself and for my own weaknesses and shortcomings, but even more a genuine sorrow for other people and for their suffering and affliction. And also for this concept of inequality as talked about in Mosiah 29 through Alma 4. So I think this would be a good place to pause and ask if there are any questions from the audience or uh, any comments from others in the chat. Uh, yeah. So, um, so folks are talking about um, the importance of listening and um, acknowledging the feelings and challenges of others. Um, even if you, um, if you're in a position of leadership, decide against them, still acknowledging um, those other points of view. Um, there's something you want to say about kind of that idea? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think, I think you know, as, we, as I mentioned, one of the things that we mourn is the, the distance between ourselves and others. And of course, that's where communication becomes a really crucial tool. We have only the tool of language. It may be a broken tool, uh, but largely that's how we connect with other people. Uh, we also have the language of our bodies, which is uh, one of the things that we're struggling right now is increasing our separation from each other is that we can't hug each other and, and shake each other's hands and be with each other physically. And, that, and that, that's a real loss. It's a, it's a language, a discourse of togetherness and community that is, is sorely lacking for so many of us today. Uh, and, and perhaps even before the coronavirus uh, made many of those things uh, forbidden in this regard. So I think, and, and, and listening goes along with that in, in, in the sense that uh, it's a mechanism for us to, to really connect and understand what other people are sensing and feeling and to be able to join together with them in, in a sense of uh, community, a sense of understanding and solidarity. Um. I wonder if you could distinguish between um, different types of mourning, um, maybe mourning that we feel for others, mourning that we feel for ourselves when things have happened that are beyond our control, and mourning that might come as a result of our own actions or large or primarily our own actions. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there are many different kinds of mourning. When we talk about the covenant in Mosiah 18, we talk about mourning with those who mourn. Uh, and that seems to me to be an invitation for us to adopt 
or to feel mournful and sorrowful alongside them, with them in their sorrow and pain, rather than than uh, just feeling something that's short of that. So there's there's a real sense in which mourning can create a, 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 that sense of solidarity and community. But I think there is a different different kinds of mourning because we can we can see the suffering that other people are enduring, and the sadness that they're feeling on, as a consequence of of struggles in their life. And sometimes we see that from a distance. We see uh, perhaps someone loses a loved one that's close to them and we can feel the sorrow. We can see it on their face and we can, and we can understand and know that it's, that it's real. And yet, uh, and yet sometimes we, we're separated from that because it's, it's, not, it's not totally personal. And so that's where I think listening and, and communication become really crucial to that process of mourning because it's, it's through, that, through that understanding that uh, we, we can really partake in the loss that they're experiencing. But yeah, we experience losses of so many different kinds in life that it would be impossible, I think, to list all the different kinds of, of things we have to mourn, the loss of things and also of people uh, and of innocence and uh, of, of community. Uh, these are all things that we carry with us and they're, they, they tend to weigh us down and can become a real burden for us. And that's where I think uh, that, that spirit of the Lord that Alma talks about that lifted him up has become so crucial for us. And we can feel that in so many ways, but one of the ways we feel that is in the kind words from other people. So maybe this question goes along with that. Um, if we're going, what do we need to do if we're going to minister after we have really sorrowed? Yeah, I think Mosiah 29 in this regard is really quite interesting because uh, one of the things it talks about here is, is being prepared. Uh, Mosiah talks at great length about the, <clears throat> the harm that can be done by a wicked king and also the burden that can come upon a righteous king, that uh, they feel perhaps to carry the burden for the whole society on themselves. And so what he really is interested in doing here is dispersing that burden to everyone to bear their part. And I think, it, I think we, we, we talk about um, sharing in the weight of the sorrow of the community. And I think that's certainly something that that uh, I know a lot of Minnesotans have felt this week, um, but also that's, that, that sorrow, that mourning needs to become something more than just the, just the sorrow. It has to turn us towards our duty. It has to invoke in us a desire to do some work to correct what's, what is the root cause of what we're mourning. And in this case, that root cause is clearly racism and structural racism as well as, as racist individuals. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to recognize that we play a part in, in, in not only suffering with those who suffer and mourning with those who mourn, but using that, that suffering and mourning to turn, to turn it into action, political action that can improve the community. And that's where that, that every person bears their part is recognizing that, look, there's work that needs to be done here. And that work has to be done by, by everyone, but probably more so by those who have committed the offenses by those who've suffered them. Yeah, that reflects um, some of the comments that attendees have posted too about the importance of um, 
bringing change through hard work and willing to dig in ourselves um, and take action. Um, so there's been some questions about, um, is there such a thing as righteous anger and, and maybe relatedly, um, um, how do we reach out to others in love and friendship when their beliefs may diminish the humanity of others? Is there a danger to that? Um, you know, how can we kind of struggle through that and love people who we disagree with when, um, when what they're doing or saying um, sends a message to others that their needs don't matter. Yeah. So on the, on those two points, I think I, I hope you, maybe you'll have to remind me what the second question was, but the first question about anger. Uh, yeah. I, about righteous anger. I think that's an interesting question. And I think uh, as I, as I was thinking about what to say today, probably Friday or Saturday, I, I, it really came to me that, a theme in the book of Mosiah is mourning and a theme in the book of Alma is anger. And particularly we find at the end of the book of Alma Moroni and this sort of righteous indignation that he feels about the wrongs of his people. And we're told that he, uh, and we can see that he's a, a powerful leader for his people and a, and a good man. But I don't know if the, the anger counts for him or against him. <laughs> and I think that that's, that, that would be a passage and, and probably a really uh, fascinating article for anybody listening to write for dialogue would be about the theme of anger in the book of Alma. I think what's, what's we, we probably tend to read that passage about Moroni too often as a, a, his anger is a kind of credit to him, but I'm not sure it is, particularly in the case of Bohorin, where he, he basically chews this guy out who, without understanding what's happening. Um, and so I think that's, and that's the great danger of anger as from a philosophical point of view, if you read Seneca or other thinkers, you know, is that anger carries you away and you, you lose sort of the brakes on your personality and uh, on, on your, uh, I guess, your self-command. And, and that's why anger, that's why really we want to we not be angry at all. <laughs> And so I, I don't know if there's a righteous anger. I would struggle. I struggle to think about that. I think there are things that it may be righteous to be angry about, but I think uh, it also probably boils down to a, a question of how, how controlled and focused are we uh, with, with that feeling? Because I think it's, it's a feeling that can so quickly get out of control for any of us, even if we're, even if we're angry and railing against something that, that is worth being angry about, uh, it, it can get, get out of control on us. I think yeah. your second question was about maybe paternalism in, I can't quite remember the second question. Yeah, Sorry let me, uh, before we go back to that, I just wanna pull in a thought from one of our um, attendees who, who, uh, who says, um, what we often see construed as righteous anger, the kind that's demonstrated by Christ, um, the challenge comes that in that, Unlike Christ, we're not the best judges of what, how, and how long anger should be brought to bear. Um, so we might feel justified in our anger and actions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the kind of righteous indignation that. Yeah, that's that a fascinating Christ. point. Yeah, I think we, I think we look at, at obviously the story that comes to mind when you read that is the story of the money changers in the temple, um, and this action where we see Christ being presumably angry. And maybe even maybe even violent, destructive to property. It sounds like, but 
Uh, and so I would have to think a lot more about that. I think that we, we, we often want to point to that one example as a sign that it's justified to be angry, right? And that, and that we, can be, we can be angry and, and our anger can be righteous. And I, that might be true. I'm not sure. I, I certainly can't answer whether that's possible or not, but I think that, uh, I, but I think it's also wise to recognize that, that uh, as I've already said, our anger can carry us away to uh, a place where, where it's not safe to be for us and for others. And I think that's clearly the kind of anger that Nehor feels towards Gideon in Alma chapter one. It says that he's wroth and he's so angry at him that he has to, he actually hits him and beats him down and kills him. So I think that, you know, that, that's where I, you know, I want to, I want to see that, that side of anger too, and not, not let go of it, even if we want to justify our anger in some cases. Some cases our anger is reasonable. Sometimes we have very good reasons to be angry at other people and also at wrongs and injustices in the world. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't feel anger at those things. But I think we have to think about uh, perhaps just how, where that anger takes us and where we let it take us. Maybe. Yeah, I'll maybe just um, chime in with a suggestion. Um, Black theologian uh, Howard Thurman writes about this in Jesus and the Disinherited. And it's just, um, if folks want to, um, take a look at that. Um, Thurman was a big influence on Martin Luther King and um, and has beautiful things to say. Uh, the other question had to do with um, how do we reach out to others in love and friendship and practice this politics of friendship um, when the beliefs of others and the actions of others diminish the humanity of, of others? Um, is there a danger in reaching out in love um, when, when those folks are, are, are alienating and um, denying the humanity of, um, of folks. Yes, yes and no, yes and no. <laughs> There's a danger in the sense that uh, there, there must be a risk taken for us uh, when we put ourselves out there in a position uh, prepared to love. But there's also a risk if we don't. And there's also a danger if we don't try to build relationships that are productive. I think it's true that uh, there are politicians and other persons in the world with whom I would choose not to be friends, um, that they're not the kind of people that I would want to have over to the house for a picnic. But I think that uh, the spirit of friendship that should prevail in communities, in, in, in public communities, and I think a lot of thinkers, uh, Aristotle and Cicero in particular, write a great deal about friendship and how how friendship is tied to moral goodness and how our friends can elevate us and strengthen us. And I think uh, there, and, and, and we know too that, that the opposite of friendship, that enmity that I think is, it can be such an embittering experience and such a, and also an experience that really draws on the wells of anger. That's also real. And I think we, I, so I think we have to be mindful of, uh, at least of the fact that if, if, we're, if we're seeing others who are acting that way towards other people, we should perhaps ask ourselves, why? why? What, is it, what is it that they haven't learned to mourn? And what is it that they're carrying in their heart that makes them so bitter? 
and so vicious? Because I think if we can ask that question, then we might be able to, to figure out how to, how to build a relationship with them that could help them to become less vicious. Uh, I, I know the impulse though, is to write, write people off and, and to say that their viciousness, their viciousness disqualifies them for our friendship, disqualifies them for our love. But ultimately, that seems to be not what Jesus taught. Um, and particularly in that place where he talks about if he, you know, your brother offends you seven times in a day. Of course, there are seven times in a day when he does, he, the, the brother offends you and he doesn't ask for you to forgive him. And that's, and that's the, even more, the even more dangerous part of this whole equation is that nevertheless, still, you're supposed to put yourself out there uh, and somehow marshal the resources of friendship and forgiveness. And, and I, and again, sometimes this is, we're talking about, as Derrida would say, French, forgiveness is impossible. And, and I think what I take that to me is largely that it's not in our own power. We, we can't do it of our own self every time. We have to draw on other, other kinds of powers. Yeah, so there are a lot of great comments and questions on chat. Um, a couple others I'll pull in. Um, we have a tendency as a religious community to, to not take tragedy seriously. Um, uh, because, you know, ultimately we'll be happy. This is a short period of time. So what's the big deal? How do we kind of push back against that? Um, and also, what do we do with our own history of racism in the church? And, and how does that come into play with, um, with what's happening today and with our responsibility, um, both with, within the church and within our larger society? Yeah. Well, what was the first part of that question? I'm sorry. I, I got caught on the uh, second yeah, part. Yeah, I'm throwing too much at you. Um, so this idea that, um, you know, this earth life is a short period of time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're all headed to, you know, this right. place where none of these Yeah, so, I mean, I think the idea that we don't have to worry about the suffering of the world in the here and now, because we're all going to find joy in the world hereafter is, is pretty saccharine. That's an artificial sweetener, that is, um, because, the, because we, we know that, it, you know, in, in worlds to come, our position will be determined by what we did with the injustice in the world today, and whether we bound up the brokenhearted and minister to the widow and, and the orphan. So we, you know, yes, the mighty will fall, and our task is to, is to, to minister to, to the weak and the lowly as well. And so... I think that I think that that's not a not a sensible way uh, to think about about the future. Um, that you know, just even if you have this naive faith that everything will be okay in the end, I don't want to dismantle that naive faith. But I also uh, want to inform it with a kind of adult understanding that you know this the things that happen in this world are utterly terrible and wholly tragic. I think US American culture is just superficial enough, and I alluded to that, that, that we uh, may easily drown ourselves in a kind of sea of entertainment and of meaningless sort of, uh, you know, pop, just these empty 
empty thing, empty thoughts and, and uh, thoughts that go nowhere towards bettering our communities. And that's itself its own kind of tragedy. But as Latter-day Saints, we have the Book of Mormon. And I don't know that there's a more tragic record that's ever been written. And, and it points towards the, the tragic nature of the politics in the sense that we, we will all fail to live up to our potential. We all have, and we will continue to do that, both individually and collectively. And so uh, we have to be able to consider uh, that you know, this, this tragic nature of our political communities, that, they, that there will be failure. I think it was Enoch Powell who said that all, all political careers end in failure. And I think that's probably pretty true, <laughs> um, especially if uh, you're focused only on uh, solving the problems which don't ever get solved. Look at the problem of racism itself. We, the, the, you know, as someone who was in high school when Rodney King was, was nearly beaten to death, it's, it's painful to see that in 30 years, we've made almost no progress as a society. And so, uh, you know, to, to face our the own history of racism in our, in our church is, is crucial. Uh, and I would invite you to consider uh, reading a book called Stamped from the Beginning, which is really a powerful book and another uh, by the same author. Uh, how to be an anti-racist. Those two texts in the last year have really informed my sense of, of uh, how to think about and face the dangers of racism and how to learn uh, to be against racism. It's not enough just to, be, to say I'm not a racist, but one must also fight against racism. And that, those books are by Ibram X. Kendi, and I would strongly recommend those uh, to anybody who has time to read them. So the other um, question I had posed was about um, the church's history of racist policies um, in the past and, and, and kind of our responsibility as Latter-day Saints for the persistence of racism um, in society and how we can. Yeah, and that's where I think Ibram X. Kennedy's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, becomes really crucial. And I think it, 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 it teaches you to understand not only the consequences of structural racism and also uh, the danger that comes from not uh, paying close attention uh, to how, how things are harmed. There's also a great podcast, uh, Seeing Whiteness is the name of it, that uh, I would strongly recommend for people who uh, maybe haven't quite come to understand uh, the role that um, the whiteness, whiteness is, tends to be invisible to white people. <laughs> they don't, they think that the world is like the way that they see it. And part of that's a consequence of, of both wealth and privilege, particularly in, in US American society. Uh, we tend to, to, to not see the, the, the sharp and also blunt edges of, of uh, white, white supremacy and white authority. And so, uh, we have to learn to see that. It doesn't come naturally to us, and it's, it's on us to do the work of learning how to do that. And I think uh, that, that, like that podcast I said, Seeing Whiteness can help, help people perhaps uh, come to terms with that history. Because uh, it's, not, it's not just a history in the church, it's also a history in our country and a history in the world that uh, I, I would urge, urge all of us to think more broadly than the history of our own people, which, which is, is tragic, to be sure, 
but I think we have to encounter it in even the wider networks of American and world history before we can we can begin to come to terms with, with uh, fixing or addressing yeah. it in any kind of yeah. way. And I think understanding our our Latter-day Saint tradition, the history with racism in that larger context is really important. I'm also thinking about um, dear brother Darius Gray's um, admonition for us to um, to acknowledge racism and to recognize it in ourselves um, and not point fingers and say it's just out there, but it is here um, in us um, and to take a, a take a new approach um, that often involves mourning and listening. Absolutely. That's one of the things Kendi's book will teach you. And I think it's consistent with what Mosiah is saying about learning to answer for our own sins is that Kendi uh, Kendi encouraged us to not think in, in terms of an on and off switch. You're not either racist or not racist. The question is, how racist are you? <laughs> and, how, and how is your racism uh, affecting the people around you? And what are you doing to dial it back and to correct it and, and also uh, to do the work of, of promoting justice in society for other people. When you see things that are done by others that are not right, do you speak up or do you stay quiet? There's not really any neutral ground here. And that's the key that we have to learn is that the, the neutrality is, has to go, the first thing that has to go out the window. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pull in this comment um, from, from John. Um, who says some of our brothers and sisters mourn as silently as possible. I think they do this because they see us unwilling to mourn because at times we display that mourning um, with them as inconvenient, uncomfortable, or unpopular. Um, and I hope to be more aware and sensitive to my brothers and sisters who mourn silently. Yeah, I was speaking with my wife about this yesterday and she's so good at letting, letting things be. And she knows that there are some people who in their morning they want to be left alone and there are some people in their morning who need the comfort and, and the presence of other people and i think being able to read and going going back to the you know the discussion about communication and listening even being able to read the kind of person that you're you're to mourn with and to be with in their morning is is really crucial because i think some some of us need a lot of space to mourn and some of us need no space at all need that distance to be collapsed so okay um great discussion <laughs> um i don't know christian is there something i'm really missing here or should we let david wrap up well i wanted to, i wanted to and maybe we've talked about it but i wanted to interject the uh the thought that comes up in a number of questions and i i relate it to being part of a systemic systemically racist system that, um, that, well, put it in my words, that mourning may involve or include um, seeing ourselves as part of the system that is inherently or, or fundamentally racist, um, not in our own attitudes, but in our, our being part of the system that has, and uh, let me stop there and, Put that back to you, David. Yeah, so, well, that's one of the problems with systems and with organizations is that when we, when we think about in the context of, of understanding what is praiseworthy and what's blameworthy, 
one of the challenges in belonging to organizations and systems is that the blame is spread across so many people that almost no one can take responsibility for it if they choose, or everyone can choose not to take responsibility for it, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, what we have to do is learn how to take responsibility for it and to accept the blame that, that the system bears and also that we bear because we're part of those systems. And I think that's where uh, probably as, as Latter-day Saints, I think we have a, a relatively weak understanding of systematic and structural kinds of harms because we emphasize so much the power of choices. And I think that you know, other philosophies like Stoic philosophy is, is also uh, in danger of that same problem because the Stoics are constantly telling people, well, it's not in your control what the system does. You have to focus only on what's in your control. And I think that's where, that's where that, you know, this idea of, of working for better systems, accepting the burden that the system's broken, that the world is broken, that you're broken, and, and you're part of the brokenness, but you're also part of, of those available now to do something about it. And to, to, to turn that, that recognition and that awareness into work to repair it. Now, I think I'm, I'm persuaded by uh, my friend, Benjamin Peters, uh, Ben Peters, who posted on Facebook just the other day about, about the sort of micro acts of service and goodness. We talk a lot about microaggressions, and I'm talking, he's talking about the opposite of a microaggression. What would be, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't know, micro, I don't know what you'd call it, but, <laughs> um, but you know, these acts of, of speaking up, being kind, uh, pointing out racism when you see it, and calling it to account, working uh, against the system, from within even or from without whatever it takes but every day these small gestures that we that we perform can transform the world and uh it's it's really and that to me ultimately is the message of alma 4 as a as a document about mourning it what's praiseworthy there most praiseworthy in alma 4 is not the great accomplishments of politicians and of powerful leaders to me what's really praiseworthy is is the fact that there are people who are doing precisely those things that, uh, that, that the, those micro-ministrations, micro-ministries, so to speak, I don't know, micro-gestures of ministering to others. And, uh, and, and we, we see there the, the powerful verbs that characterize, that characterize them. What were they doing? They saw the inequality and the pride and the harm and the danger of racism and all these other things. And what did they do? They abased themselves abasing, suckering, feeding, and so on, imparting of their substance, feeding the hungry, and suffering all manner of afflictions for Christ's sake, and looking forward at the same time. So those are the things that we have to learn how to do. And, and uh, truly, it's my prayer that we will be found not lifting ourselves up, no, but abasing ourselves, suckering, imparting, feeding, and suffering for Christ's sake, Looking forward to that day when justice will flow down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream, so that we might all be filled with great joy through the power and deliverance of Jesus Christ. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, David, and everyone for this um, lesson and discussion. Um, I'm inspired to go out and 
do it uh, micro micro ministering as someone's just labeled this. Um, please join us next week for a lesson on Alma 5 through 7, which will be taught by Dr. LaShawn Williams. Our closing prayer today will be offered by Dialogue board member Linda Hoffman Kimball. Linda is an author, artist, poet, activist. Um, currently, in, a, in addition to serving on the Dialogue board, she's also the co-editor in chief and art director of Segula and co-founder of Mormon Women for Ethical Government. Our gracious God and Father, we thank thee for this Sabbath day. We're grateful for the words that we have heard today and for the compassion and love that fueled and informed them. Father, we thank thee for our place in this broken and wounded world. We pray that thou will bless us, that we may learn the lessons of mourning, that we may grow in compassion and understanding that our ability to love may overcome our weaknesses as they are revealed to us. And we ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.